Okay, a couple of quick announcements before we get started. Number one, this coming Saturday we have our men's prayer breakfast at 7.30 in the morning until about 8.45-ish or so, 9 o'clock. We have our uh, <clears throat> deacons meeting. And then uh, Sunday, the Samaritan's Purse Christmas shoe drop thing begins, and that's the uh, Franklin Graham ministry, and we collect different items to be sent um, uh, to those who are in need, and that that's, uh, starts, and there's information about that out in the, the uh, fellowship hall. And then on uh, Sunday night, September the 29th at 6 p.m., we'll start our Bible study methods um, class. Uh, there won't be child care, and I was telling you some things about uh, atlases uh, at the last the last couple of classes. The, the new one, I've got the hardback version. I showed you some of the uh, satellite uh, JPEGs last time. That's down here on the table, on the communion table in front of me, as well as several other. There's an ESV uh, Bible Atlas, which is the thickest of them. The one I like, with it just came out. Well, that one came out recently, and so did another one down there uh, by Rasmussen, which is the Zondervan uh, NIV Bible Atlas, and that is is uh, very good as well. So those are just some different ones that you can look at to get an idea of what they are what they are like. So that class will start and uh, will be live streamed starting Sunday. Uh, a week from this coming Sunday night. The other thing to put on your calendars and to start thinking about is that on October the 17th, we're going to have an event that I've been working on for about four months now, bringing in a speaker from an organization, another pro-Israel advocacy organization called Stand With Us. Her name is Vita Velasco. I met her when she was on the trip to Israel that I went on back in May. Uh, Vita is just a dynamite little powerhouse. I mean... We're probably going to have to put that step up here because she's about, I think, on high heels, she's five feet. But she's a Filipino Christian, and she is one of the very few Christians who works for an all-Jewish organization like this, but she just has such a passion for Israel. But she's extremely bright. She's about 32, looks like she's about 22. So she really connects with young people. So on Thursday night, October the 17th, we're having an event that's going to be targeted to those who are roughly 15 to 25, and that will be held at Beth Yeshurn Synagogue. I've been in contact over the last couple of weeks with Rabbi Rosen over there, and they've been very gracious to open their doors because uh, a lot of the Jewish young people who would attend, if they're Orthodox, they can't come to a Christian church. So... We've worked all that out. We want to have a good showing of Christian kids for that event. That's on a Thursday night. I'm going to probably need to be there to open it, but it starts at 7, so then I'll break every speeding law. Just kidding. Between there and here to get here by 7.30. And then <clears throat> then on for the adults, uh, Vita will be speaking. We'll have another event on that Sunday night, so be sure to get that on your calendars, October the 20th from uh, 6.30 to 7.30 like we had with Yoram a couple of weeks ago, and you don't want to, don't want to uh, miss that. So this is going to be something to look forward to. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, 
but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture teaches that if we uh, are walking by the Spirit and then sin, then we lose our fellowship with God, not our salvation, just our ongoing uh, fellowship or rapport with God. Identified in Scripture is walking in the truth, walking by means of the Spirit, being filled by means of the Spirit, abiding in Christ, abiding in Him. To recover that, when we sin, we simply confess our sins in silent prayer to God the Father. We're instantly forgiven of all sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship so we can resume our spiritual advance. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're so very grateful for your grace in our lives that you have given us so much. And in this particular church age, we have the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And he is the one who, uh, when we walk by him, fills us with his word. He is the one who energizes, empowers us, strengthens us uh, to live for you every day. He is the one who helps us to understand your word, stores it in our soul, reminds us of the doctrine when we need it to apply it. And Father, we just pray tonight as we study about the uniqueness of this baptism by the Holy Spirit, that you would help us to come to a greater understanding of what that means and its implications for our everyday life. And Father, we pray that you'd make these things very clear to us as we study in the next hour. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. And in the last few weeks, we've gone through the details of Paul's third missionary journey where he ends up in, in Acts, I mean, in Ephesus. Ephesus is on the Aegean Sea. It's in the western shore of, of a, what is now modern Turkey. At the time, it was on the water. It, there was a large, huge harbor there that has since silted in. Probably for the last 1,600 years, it's been silted in. And now the city of, of Ephesus, which is one of the largest uh, archaeological sites in the Middle East, in, in Bible lands, larger than any other site, huge area that's been excavated, is about 50 miles from the Aegean, so it's really, uh, really backed up. But when Paul arrived, he spent the first three months uh, going to the synagogue. This is the longest time period that we've seen in his, in his journeys. In fact, it will be the longest time period for him to have a ministry in a synagogue. At the end of chapter 18, we saw that at the end of his second journey, as he is returning from, uh, <clears throat> from, from Greece and from Corinth, he stopped briefly in Ephesus and he spoke in the synagogue. Then he went on to Jerusalem, to Antioch, and then returned. A period of three or four months went by, and he's back, and he is speaking uh, every week in the synagogue in Ephesus. And before him, Apollos had a ministry there. So there, it's very interesting. There was an extremely large Jewish population in Ephesus, and they, it took them a while before they hardened themselves uh, against uh, the gospel and against, against hearing the truth. So this is his longest ministry. Now, what happened when he first came, as we saw last time, is that as he arrived, he found some disciples. They probably knew something about Jesus, but not much. Not as much as Apollos did, and Apollos didn't know enough to know that Jesus had been crucified 
uh, buried and resurrected, as we saw at the end of chapter 18. They were familiar only with John the Baptist and John the Baptist's message, and if they probably had been around long enough to have uh, heard something about Jesus, but that was it. Uh, so they had believed at the time in terms of the amount of revelation that they had been given, so we would classify them as Old Testament saints. I covered the uh, issue of transition in Acts. Very important to understand that this is a time period between the death of Christ in uh, AD 33 and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, when there are certain elements of the old age, the age of Israel, that are still being practiced, and that there are new things that have come into effect with the church age. And one of those things that came into effect, which marks the beginning of the church age, is what is known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there's been a lot of confusion over the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the last 110, 115 years since the beginning of what became known as the Pentecostal movement. The Pentecostal movement inherited part of its confusion from a preceding movement in American evangelicalism known as the holiness movement that really had its roots in Wesleyanism or Wesleyan theology or Methodism going back to roughly the 1840s. And they both were built on the idea that there is one work of grace at salvation when you're justified, and then there's a second work of grace that comes after salvation, that is when you are sanctified. And they would identify that second work of grace as the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that they would do is go to the book of Acts and point out at the day of Pentecost you had believers who were saved and later on got the Holy Spirit. Then they would go to uh, Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans who believed and later got the Holy Spirit. Cornelius the Gentile in Acts 10 believed, but they got the Holy Spirit right when they believed. They sort of ignored that, and then they come to this chapter. And these are Old Testament believers who get the Holy Spirit later. So they had this this pattern from Acts that they thought established a precedent, not recognizing that this is a transition period, and there's a reason why these things happened the way they did, as we've studied in the previous lessons. So we find that Paul discovers these disciples, and he, in his conversation, realizes there's there's something that seems to be missing, and so he asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit when, when they believed. Actually, the participle that's translated there is an aorist participle for pistuo, and the aorist participle can be can take place at the same time as the verb, but usually it's before the action of the verb. So it would have the idea of did you receive the Holy Spirit after you believed, um, or when you believed? It could be either way, and um, but the point is they had not even heard about the Holy Spirit. So they had not, uh, the second part of the verse, we have not so much as heard where there's a Holy Spirit. We don't know anything about this. So obviously there was a deficit in their spiritual experience. They had not entered into the church age because that which distinguishes the church age believer, the Christian, is, according to Romans 6.3, this thing called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now, what in the world is that? When does it happen? How does it happen? How many times does it happen? So in verse 3, Paul said, 
<clears throat> into what then were you baptized? And notice I put in the Greek term here, the preposition ace, and that's very important because it indicates a final state. And we'll see this because John uses the word to indicate, the, John the Baptist uses the word to indicate the final state at the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's into repentance, that's the final state, uh, into Christ for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And <clears throat> so this is the, the important to recognize those, those prepositions. That's, they're consistent here. Uh, Paul says, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Jesus Christ. John the Baptist's message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If one repented, then to signify their repentance, their new state of being a repentant person, they would be baptized by John the Baptist in water through immersion, this identified them with John's message of the coming kingdom, which is crucial. And we'll, I want you to notice, because we'll discuss this a little later on, that when Paul talks to the synagogue in verse 8, he says that it says that he's reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the messianic kingdom that has been postponed. The kingdom of God was what was offered by John, offered by Jesus, offered by uh, Jesus' disciples, but rejected by the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership so that it was postponed to the future. They need to understand this. This is why, as we've been studying on Matthew on Sunday mornings, one of the reasons Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience is to help them understand why this kingdom was postponed, that it was offered, rejected, and postponed, but it will come about when Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. He will establish that kingdom. So there was John's baptism, which was related to uh, that particular message. And so when they heard this, at the instant they heard this, they said, well, this is true. They believed in the name of the Lord. They believed in the Lord Jesus. Now they heard the full gospel, as it were, and they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, last time I pointed out that there are eight different baptisms in the New Testament. Three of them are wet baptisms or ritual baptisms. There's the baptism of John the Baptist, which I just discussed. There's the baptism of Jesus, which is unique because it's not related to sin or a picture of cleansing of sin, but uh, depicts is, uh, the inauguration or initiation into ministry. Uh, baptism, there were many baptisms or washings in Judaism, and they depicted cleansing from sin and uh, separating the person unto a particular ministry. That's Jesus' baptism. The third baptism, also a wet baptism and ritual baptism, is believer's baptism that was initiated by Jesus Christ in what is called the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, when he told the disciples, go into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That command has never been rescinded, so it is still operative for every believer in the church age because it is a picture of what transpires in a spiritual realm at the instant of salvation. What transpires in the spiritual realm is this identification 
with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. As I pointed out last time, baptism means to be immersed into something, but it signified or represented an identification of one thing with something else. John's baptism represented the identification of the, uh, of the penitent believer with the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus' baptism is an identification of Jesus with the plan of God for his three years of ministry on the earth. The believer's water baptism is a picture of the spiritual baptism or identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, aside from those three ritual baptisms, there are five dry baptisms or what may be called real baptisms in the uh, New Testament. Talked about those last time. There's the baptism of Noah in 1 Peter chapter 3. There's the baptism of Noah, excuse me, Moses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 3. There's the baptism of the cross. Uh, There's the baptism of of a fire, which comes at the baptism of the cross is when Christ is identified with our sins on the cross. There's the baptism of fire, which is the judgment that Jesus brings with him at the second coming to end the uh, conflagration of the battle of Armageddon. And then there is the baptism by the Holy Spirit. That's what we're looking at this evening. Now, the baptism by the Holy Spirit is is really uh, focused on one central passage. There are numerous passages that teach it, but the one central passage for the church age believer is First Corinthians chapter twelve, verse thirteen. Now we're going to spend a little time on this verse. Uh, you may want to turn there, but there's three key passages: First Corinthians twelve thirteen, Matthew three eleven, and Galatians three twenty seven and twenty eight. Those are the three key passages for the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Now we have to understand a problem in in, in interpreting this verse a little bit initially, and it has to do with grammar and poor translation, a poor understanding of both Greek and English in bringing about this translation. For by one spirit, Paul writes, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So here he's talking about all of us. Remember, he's talking to the Corinthian Christians who are among the most reprobate Christians on the planet. They were guilty of a number of ongoing sins. They were arrogant. They were divisive. They were taking each other to court over lawsuits. They were involved in all sorts of uh, sexual promiscuity. They were going out and having uh, orgies at the Lord's table and getting drunk. And a number of other things were going on in the congregation. And so this is not, uh, this is probably the worst uh, in the most immoral congregation of any of the of the churches that Paul addresses in the New Testament. But he says of them that we were all made to drink of one spirit. In other words, this baptism isn't related to your behavior. It's related to an act of God that occurs for every single believer that happens at the instant of salvation. For by one spirit, Paul writes, we were all, every one of us, even all these people he's been castigating all the way through the book on because of their immoral and arrogant activity, he says we were all baptized into one body. Now, obviously, this isn't talking about water baptism because he's not saying we were all baptized in one water 
uh, or in one river or one lake. He's into one body. That's referring to the body of Christ. And that idea of baptism is what it signifies, and that is identification. Remember I said last week, three eyes to remember. One is baptism relates to immersion. Second, it relates to identification. And I can't remember what the third one was. What was the third one last time? I ran into that same thing last week. There's identification, immersion, and what? Inauguration. That's what it was. See, I never could remember those kinds of things. Um, identification, uh, immersion, identification, and inauguration. And so this is related to uh, uh, immersion, but it's a symbolic immersion into the body of Christ, and it's an identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection so that we are all in one body at that point. And as Galatians 3.27 points out, and uh, that this eradicates the spiritual significance of three areas of life. So in Galatians 3.27, Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. This is true for every believer. We have put on Christ. We have a new identity. We are now in Christ. Therefore, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now he's talking to an audience that is made up of ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. Has that been eradicated physically? No. There's still ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. But in the Old Testament, if you were a Gentile, you could only enter so far into the tabernacle or temple in the worship of God. Your racial identity kept you at a distance from God. Only Jews could enter into the uh, holy uh, place, into the uh, courtyard of the tabernacle, and into the closer areas of worship. But now in Christ... Those distinctions no longer matter. We all have equal access to God the Father through the death of Christ on the cross. He goes on to say there's neither slave nor free man. Again, an economic distinction because in the Old Testament, a slave could only go so far. A slave could not enter into the uh, inner areas of the temple, had to stay further away with the Gentiles. And then the third category was there's neither male nor female. Remember in the second temple we studied, the outer part was called the courtyard of the women. The, the women could, the Jewish women could get closer than the Gentiles, but they couldn't get as close as a Jewish male. So your, your, uh, gender, your economic status and your racial status limited your access to God in Ritual worship at the temple in the Old Testament. Well, Paul is saying because of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, these are no longer issues spiritually. He's not saying there's no longer a difference between men or women or slaves or free. Onesimus was a slave that he sent him back to uh, uh, Philemon and said, Philemon, let him go if you want to, but receive him back as a fellow brother in Christ. So he still recognized these were physical distinctions, but they didn't have spiritual significance anymore. Now, what we see here is that baptism is into Christ. That's the goal in the, in the uh, spirit baptism. Just as we saw in the First uh, Corinthians 3.13, for by one spirit we were baptized into, that's ace, into one body. What's that body? That body, Galatians 3.27, is we're now in the body of Christ. 
Now, we go back and look at 1 Corinthians 12, 13. There's another important phrase. This is where we get into a little uh, nitty-gritty grammar, which I know fries some people's brains. Other people get all excited about it. But grammar is important because grammar really represents the skeletal structure of thought in, in any sort of writing. And grammar says a lot about what a person means. Now, at the beginning, we read for by one spirit. And there are a lot of people who have read that in English and thought that that meant that the spirit was the one who did the baptizing. And if all you had was the English, that would be a fair conclusion that we're baptized by the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit does the baptizing work. But that's not right because the phrase in the Greek with the preposition in doesn't indicate the one who does the baptizing. It indicates the instrument used to bring about this new identification. Okay, so we have the phrase in Numity, we were all baptized. The aorist tense is a past tense. Simply means that this is something that happened in the past. It's a passive voice, meaning that somebody does it to us. We don't do it ourselves. We receive the action of the verb. We were baptized into one body. Now, the reason I say I'm pointing this out is that in every one of these baptismal statements that we look at, you have two or three of these elements. You're going to have an in clause. You're going to have an ace clause. The in clause indicates the instrument used. The ace clause indicates the end game or the end result. And then you're going to have a verb, and you're also going to have someone who performs the action of the verb. Now, those are the components. I'll break it down in a chart in a minute. Now, here's the problem. We have this phrase in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit. Looks like the spirit's the one who does it. It's the phrase in numity, as I have in the cutout, in numity, and it should be translated by means of. The spirit's the instrument. Now watch very carefully, because when I hit the button, we're going to change verses, but we didn't change the phrase. When John the Baptist is talking about Jesus, he says, "He in the last couple of lines, he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's the King James and New King James translation. But notice, the Greek is the same in this verse and in this verse. But the English is different. In one place, it's by the Spirit. In the other place, it's with the Spirit. And what happened back in the 1800s was some people within the Methodist holiness tradition read that, and they went, we have two different baptisms. The reason we're having a problem in our spiritual life is because we've got one baptism, but we don't have the other baptism. This started with a woman teaching a women's home Bible study in New York in the 1840s by the name of Phoebe Palmer. And Phoebe Palmer made the mistake that thousands of other Christians had made down through the ages is that she was looking at the church experience on the eastern seaboard of the United States in the 1840s and churches which had grown a lot in the 1700s and early 1800s, especially after the Second Great Awakening, were beginning to shrink. And so the question they had was they looked around at the numbers and they said, well, we don't have, we used to have 500 people here. Now we have 300. What are we doing wrong? If God, if we were doing things right, God would be blessing us. We would have more people. But they forgot something. They didn't look outside the walls of the church and hear Horace Greeley say, go west, young man, go west. 
And everybody was going west, so that meant they were leaving their home churches, and they were going west, and the churches back home were shrinking, and people were going west to settle the rest of America. And so there were a lot of factors that were going on for why churches on the eastern seaboard were shrinking. But they said, oh, no, no, it's we're, we're doing something wrong. What happens so often we see is people ask the wrong question, they get the wrong answer, and they make things even worse. The question they said was, what are we doing wrong? Well, they weren't doing anything wrong. But they thought they were, so they started misinterpreting Scripture to find a wrong answer. And so their answer was, we have to have a second work of grace. We've got to get the second baptism. And they based it on a misunderstanding of the English translation, and they looked at a with and a by, and they said, we've got two different baptisms here. Not knowing the Greek, which had the same phrase underlying both. It was just that in the King James Version, one person had translated the gospel passages, another person had translated the uh, Corinthians passage, and the person who translated the Corinthian passages preferred the translation by, the person who translated the Matthew and Mark and Luke passages preferred the translation with, and so it came out looking as if there were two different baptisms. So... Pentecostal charismatic theology ended up with two baptisms of the Holy Spirit, one with the Holy Spirit at salvation and one by the Holy Spirit after salvation. Problem is, some non-charismatics also picked up on that to some degree and didn't quite clarify the distinction between the two. So we have to go back and, and sort of clean this up a little bit. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. The word baptize is, as I pointed out last time, a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, which means to dip, plunge, or immerse one thing into something else. And usually it has a symbolic meaning of identification of something with with what it's being immersed into. It has that idea of identification uh, and, and close association. The into one body is the accusative case, which indicates the goal, the purpose of this new identification. Now we get the grammar lesson. You were fearing it. Now it's here. Basic English. When I was in school, it was probably second grade. Now it's probably sixth grade. John hit the ball with the bat. Basic sentence. Who? Pref- what's the action in that sentence? John hit the ball. This is, this is almost part of, those of you who want to take Bible study methods coming up, this is almost part of what we do in Bible study methods. First thing you ask of a sentence is, where's the verb? What's the verb in this sentence? Hit. Who performs the action of the verb? John. John is the grammatical subject who performs the action, and he hits the ball, and he uses a bat to hit the ball. So the bat becomes the instrument, the means by which the action is carried out. So your verb is hit. It's an active voice, which means the grammatical subject, John, performs the action of the verb. The ball is the object that receives the action when John hits the ball. And the means is expressed by the preposition in English, with. Now, if we were to flip the sentence from an active sentence, John hit the ball, to a passive sentence, we have to say the ball was hit by John. So here's the passive construction. 
Now, the ball is now the grammatical subject of the sentence. The ball receives the action of the verb. What's the verb? Hit, was hit. Okay? Now, the ball receives the action. Who? Uh, we don't have a statement here of who performs the action. We could say the ball was hit with the bat by John. I'll get to that in a minute. The ball is the grammatical subject. Was hit is the verb. By the bat, it still expresses the instrument. So when we change in English from an active voice to a passive voice, in English, if we're going to introduce the performer of the action, we usually indicate that with the preposition by, which is what gives us this sentence, the ball was hit by John. John performs the action. But if we have a sentence, the Christian was baptized by the Spirit, it looks in English like the Spirit is the one doing the baptizing. Because that's what, in English, the code word to indicate the performer of the action in a passive voice construction is the preposition by. So you see the word by and you go, that's the one that performs the action. He switched places in the sentence because we went to a passive verb. But in Greek, you have a different code word. In Greek, see if you, the top line, the ball was hit by John with or by the bat. The subject is the ball. The verb is was hit. By John now, that indicates the agent of the, uh, of the action. And then you have the means, which is by the bat. You know, I messed this up one time before, so I'm going to uh, fix this right now while you're watching. For some reason, that got put in the wrong place. Happens sometimes. Okay. John now that got that right. Okay, John, hupa should be there. In Greek, the one who performs the action in a passive voice construction, that code word is the preposition hupa. It's not in. In represents the means that's used. The passive, the, the Greek preposition that indicates the one who performs the action is hupa, not in. So when we read the, the, the Christian was baptized by the Spirit, if the Spirit's the one who does the action, it would be a different preposition. It would be the code preposition hupa, not in. In always represents the instrument, and that would be the bat, or in the case of the believer's water baptism, it would be the spirit. Uh, I mean, excuse me, the water. We would be baptized by, by the water. So what we see in the New Testament is that the baptism of the Holy, Holy Spirit is first prophesied by John the Baptist at the incarnation, when he says, there will one who will come after me, and he will baptize you by the Spirit and by fire. Who performs that action in Matthew 3.11? Look at the last line. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What's the verb? Baptize. Who performs the action? Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. Jesus performs the action. 
What does he use to perform the action? The Holy Spirit. And then uh, there's a different baptism mentioned there, and that's the baptism by fire. Okay? Jesus does the baptizing. Now, all your life, probably, you were reading 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit, thinking the spirit did the baptizing. That might work if it was written originally in English, but it was originally written in Greek, and that doesn't really tell the story. The story is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is emphasizing the role of the Spirit. He's not emphasizing the role of Christ. So Christ isn't mentioned. You don't always have every element mentioned in each of these statements. Matthew 3, 11. John says we have to understand this original situation to understand the rest of it. John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water. This is something John was doing present active. He said, I am using water to identify you with this new state of repentance. Okay? Then he said, but he's coming after me who's mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you in the future with the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit is in numity that's parallel to water. Just as John used water to identify the believer with a new state, Jesus is going to use the Holy Spirit to identify the believer with a new state. What did water symbolize? Water symbolized cleansing. What does the Holy Spirit do at the instant of salvation? He cleanses us. For it's not by Titus three five says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Notice the imagery is very much the same of this positional cleansing, absolute cleansing that takes place at the instant of salvation. So, color-coded again, the means that John used in baptism was water. The new state was repentance. Parallel to that, Jesus uses the Holy Spirit, and in the future, at the end of the tribulation, he'll use fire to affect the identification. Uh, N expresses the means or the instrument that's used. Ace indicates the goal or the direction. So in Acts 1.5, Jesus said, For John baptized, John did the work, it's an active voice verb, John baptized with water or by means of water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit or by means of the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He doesn't say who's going to do the baptizing. That's assumed already because John the Baptist already told them. He said, he who comes after me will be the one who baptizes you by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 10.2 fits the same pattern. All the Jews who were crossing the Red Sea were baptized in the past, passive voice. They received the act of identification. God was probably the one who did it. It's not stated, though. All were baptized into Moses. That's the new state, their identification with Moses. By means of the cloud and the fire, that is God's leadership, leading the people through the pillar of fire and the cloud through the Red Sea. That is what identifies. And the new state, when they come out the other side of the Red Sea, is they're now free. 
They are a new people of God, and they're identified with Moses. That's a parallel. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So we're in a new state. We're in a unified body in Christ. So how does this work? Jesus Christ uses the Holy Spirit. Just as John used water, Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with himself. That's what Romans 3 said. We're identified or we've been baptized into his death so that we might be raised to new life. The focal point of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, according to Romans 6, as we studied the last time we went through this, is that it breaks the power of the sin nature. It doesn't remove the sin nature. It breaks the power of the sin nature. Before you were saved, you could do nothing but follow the dictates of your sin nature. You couldn't do anything. You did good things, just like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount regarding his disciples. He said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. He recognized that they were still evil, even though they were believers. They, they still had a sin nature, but they could do good things. That's the point. We still have a sin nature. We can still do relatively good things. But what happens after the cross is that every believer now has the ability to live apart from their sin nature, to follow and walk by the Holy Spirit and not yield to the demands of the sin nature. Nobody prior to the cross, prior to the day of Pentecost, could ever do that. Moses was never free of his sin nature. David was never free of his sin nature. That almost goes without saying. David was never free of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel were never had that tyranny of their sin nature broken because they didn't have the baptism by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. But you and I do. So that this makes for a radical difference. We no longer have to obey the sin nature. So all of this is pictured by baptism. Now here's another chart. John in Matthew 3.11 uses water to identify the individual with repentance. Jesus, he says, is going to use the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't state what the new condition is. It's not there. When you get into 1 Corinthians 10.2, talking about Moses, it doesn't tell us who performs the action, but it does say that it's done by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. And it's into the new state of Moses. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it doesn't tell us who performs the action. It does tell us that the action is performed by the Holy Spirit, and it's into a new body. So what I want you to see here is all these different baptisms use a formula-type language to express what's going on. That helps us understand what these spirit baptism passages are are actually talking about. One more chart. John the Baptist uses water to identify the person with repentance. Jesus uses the Holy Spirit to identify the person with himself in his death, burial, and resurrection and to place us into Christ. That is amazing. This is an extremely abstract doctrine. How many people, don't raise your hand, how many people really have a handle on what this is like? We don't. So God gives us a visual training aid. 
And every time somebody becomes a Christian, they need to go through this visual training aid because it reminds the rest of us of what happened so dramatically at the beginning of our Christian experience that the power of the sin nature has been broken. But nobody ever teaches it like that. Nobody makes it clear. They think that somehow you get more grace or it's going to get you saved or it's really it, it physically washes away your sin. All kinds of stuff has been muddied. Satan has been so good at distorting this doctrine because if you don't understand this doctrine, you're not going to get very far in your Christian life because you don't understand how powerful uh, this act was at the beginning of your salvation. And, and this is why Paul says in Romans 6.10, reckon yourselves, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. It's because this has happened. But if you don't understand this, then you can't really get a handle on what it means to consider yourself to be dead to sin. So this is what water baptism is all about, not because it washes away sin, not because there's some mystical, magical power in the water, but because it teaches in a very physical, concrete way a spiritual reality related to our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's just like with a lot of folks. You go to a wedding. You're sitting there at the wedding, you're sitting there with your husband, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your wannabe boyfriend, wannabe girlfriend, whoever, and those people who are up there are reciting their vows. Now, if you're married, you think back to your marriage, and you're reminded of the vows that you made that were very similar, and it's a reaffirmation in your mind of that commitment that you made to the person that you were married to. And this is the same idea. Every time we see somebody who is baptized, it reminds us. That's why it's important for the whole church community to come together when there's a water baptism. Oh, I'm not going to go. I've been baptized. I know what it's all about. You know, I need to take my nap on Sunday afternoon. Whatever the excuse is, it's garbage. It's nonsense. It's a rationalization where you've convinced yourself that a primary command of the Lord Jesus Christ to every single believer in the church age is really not relevant anymore because, you know, it's been divisive. Everything's been divisive. Get over it. Your political beliefs are divisive. Is that why we call them irrelevant? Yeah, your, your political beliefs are irrelevant. If it's, that's what you're trying to say is because it's been divisive, it's no longer relevant. That's nonsense. That's irrational and illogical. Baptism was a command that Jesus stated for every believer. It's never been rescinded because we need to be reminded of this. Otherwise, we become awfully lax in our spiritual life. We begin to take it for granted. We take grace for granted. We take confession of sin for granted. And the Bible doesn't say... Consider yourselves to be dead to sin because every time you sin, you're going to be forgiven. So don't worry about it. See, it didn't, didn't put it that way. It says consider yourself to be dead to sin because the point is we're to live, we're to abide in Christ, we're to walk by the Spirit. The issue isn't how many times can we get re- recover the walking by the Spirit, how many times we can recover abiding with Christ. The issue is you're to stay in fellowship. We're to continue in Christ. Now, we don't do that. I understand that, but that's the the standard. And it's also related in Ephesians 4, 4, and 5 to the principle of being one in the body of Christ. 
It unifies us. This is the real foundation for true Christian unity, not ecumenicalism, not the World Council of Churches, not everybody getting together, holding hands around a fire, singing Kumbaya, or doing it in church and having all kinds of feel-good music, and then going home and thinking, oh, wasn't that wonderful because nobody said anything controversial. Now, that, that's exactly what goes on in a lot of churches. We can have unity because we're not going to talk about anything controversial. But see, in the Bible, in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the unity is the unity of the faith. One Lord, Ephesians 4, 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. People who don't agree have rejected parts of the faith. We may not like everything that the Bible tells us we're supposed to believe. We may not understand it all, but the Bible is very clear that this is a unified faith and we're to believe it all. We don't get to come along with our razor blade and say, okay, well, I don't like that verse. I'm going to cut it out. Or I'm going to take, turn pages three. I don't like that verse. I'm going to cut it out. It's a unity of the faith and it's based on one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, one faith, one solid body of doctrine. And what? One baptism. Not believer's baptism here. It's the, the unity is based on the baptism by God the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism that unifies the church because it's what we all have in common. We've been identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So the implication or one of the implications of Galatians 3, uh, 23 to 25 in terms of the baptism by the Holy Spirit is no longer do distinctions of race, gender, economics, or social uh, social aspects apply to our relationship with God. This is not saying that everybody's reduced to the same level, but it elevates everyone to a higher level than anyone had in the Old Testament. That's why it said that John the Baptist was the greatest of of the Old Testament prophets, but he's less but but he's less than any of us. He's greatest because he saw the Messiah, and they never saw the Messiah. So the, whole, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit provides us with a retroactive identification. That means it happens now, the day you believe, it retroactively identifies us with Christ on the cross, and it's the basis for our victory over the sin nature in Romans 6, uh, 3 through 5. So we define it this way. It's the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of Christ, whereby at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, Christ uses the Holy Spirit in the act of regeneration to identify the believer with his own death, burial, and resurrection so that the believer becomes a new creature in Christ where the sin nature is now dead. It's still there, it's still active, but its power is broken. That's what it means by dead. Its power is broken. Now, moving on from that, I want to briefly just show you this pattern. I mentioned this at the beginning, how in the charismatic theology, they looked at these patterns, came to the wrong conclusion. Things are changing in Acts. They're not normative things that are going on in Acts. It's a transition from one period to the next. It really represents the early apostolic period. In Acts 2, the believers there, the disciples, are already believers. They repent. They receive the Holy Spirit. Then they speak in tongues. That's the order. In Acts 8 with the Samaritans, 
They believe the gospel, then they're baptized by water, then they receive the Holy Spirit, but there's no mention of tongues at all. It's a different order and no tongues. In Acts 10, with Cornelius and the Gentiles, there's belief, then there's the baptism by the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues, and then there's water baptism. Different order. In Acts 19, they believe, then they're rebaptized in water, then they baptize, then they're baptized by the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues. It's the last time the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues are mentioned in the book of Acts. Now what happens after that is the next three verses. Paul then, after his time with them, after their baptism, and Paul lays hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8 we're told, and he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading. How did he, he speak boldly? By reasoning, which is the Greek verb, dialegomai, uh, dialegomai, which indicates not dialogue, but rational explanation and discourse. It appeals to the intellect. He is reasoning. He's presenting a case from the only scriptures they have in common, which is the Old Testament, and he's going through point by point all of the messianic prophecies, and he's showing how these were fulfilled in Jesus. It's logical. It's rigorous. He's presenting a tight, theological, exegetical case for why Jesus is the Messiah. And then he doesn't just leave it at that. He says there's an action plan here. There's something you have to do with this. You have to be convinced that this is true, and the result of that is you believe Jesus is the Messiah and you trust in him for your salvation. So there's reasoning, and then he's trying to convince them and persuade them to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And that second verb is patho, which is, again, a participle, and it it's the idea of persuading or convincing someone that something is true. It's an appeal to the will. So uh, uh, the uh, reasoning is an appeal to the intellect. Patho is an appeal to the will, okay? Give them the information they need to believe and then appeal to the will to believe it. Now look at what happens. Acts, the next phrase, the, or, or the next verse, actually shows just the opposite. But when some were hardened, after three months, it's a process. These are imperfect verbs. An imperfect verb is continuous action in past time. So it, this took place over a period of time. They gradually resisted the message. The word were hardened. And Thursday night, we've been studying the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We saw that that really doesn't mean hardened. It means the idea of being more and more resistant, that he was hardening himself. Notice, this verb, this is the Greek word that's, that's usually used to translate uh, one of those uh, Hebrew words in, in uh, Exodus for, that comes across as hardening. I pointed out on Thursday night that the only place those words are translated as hardening are are in Exodus. The rest of the time they have to do with encouraging, strengthening in one direction or another direction. So 
When some were hardened, this is the word scleruno, notice it's an imperfect middle voice. That middle voice is important because it means that the subject, the one who performs the action, does it to himself. We don't have a middle voice in English. In Greek, the middle voice is reflexive. They harden themselves. Some, God's not reaching down and tweaking their volition and saying, okay, you're locking into negative because I'm going to decide who's going to get saved and who's not going to get saved. He said it doesn't work that way. They hardened themselves. They kept listening to the gospel, and they became more and more resistant. They chose to reject his arguments. They chose to not be convinced. So scleruno has to do with their resistance intellectually to his arguments, and so they were hardened, and it's not really did not believe because the verb there, see the verb in uh, verse 8 was patho, on the right, this is apatho. The a at the beginning, the alpha, is like our, pre- our prefix un. It negates it. So they were, he was trying to persuade them, and they were not persuadable. They resisted. They would not be persuaded of the truth. And the result is, is that they began to slander the way. That was another term they used to describe Christianity as the followers of the way because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So they spoke evil of the way before the multitude. So he departed from them, that is, from the synagogue, and he went down the street to the school, the skole, the school of uh, Tyrannus, and rented space there and reasoned daily and taught every day. And this is where he trained Disciples, And they didn't just sit there and take notes in their Bible notebook, write notes in their Bible, but then they went out and they witnessed to people and they taught people. And verse 10 says, this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, let me see. I've been back here almost (laughs) nine years. Now, can it be said that after nine years that everybody in South Texas has heard the word of Jesus because of what's been going on at West Houston Bible Church. And if it can't be said, then what's the problem? Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of the fantastic thing that occurred at our salvation that we didn't experience, we didn't feel it, but it's true that the power of our sin nature was broken, that we were set free from the power of sin, even though we still have the sin nature and we still yield to it too often, we are not to yield to the sin nature. We're to consider ourselves dead to sin, and we are to present ourselves, as Paul says in Romans 6, to be slaves of righteousness. But, Father, we don't always act that way because we don't always understand that we don't have to follow the pressures and dictates of the sin nature anymore. So when we understand the baptism by the Holy Spirit, we can begin to understand the real freedom that we have in Christ, that tyranny of the sin nature has been broken. And, Father, we pray that you might help us to understand more fully what it means to trust you and to take the word of truth, the gospel, to all those who need to hear it, that we might be faithfully communicating the gospel to everyone around us. 
and that we might not treat that lightly either. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.